Our scripture reading this morning begins with Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11. Please stand if you are able. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched my heart with how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold of Foley till I might see what is what was good for the children of man to do under heaven under during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And a second reading this morning from Luke 12:15 through 21. And Jesus said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid upon for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared. Whose will they be? So, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is God's word. And go ahead and make your way back to the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, if you are trying to find that in your Bibles, open straight to the middle. You'll land in either Psalms or Isaiah, most likely. And if you go to Isaiah, if you're in Isaiah, go left. If you're in Psalms, go right. And it's, it's right after Proverbs, before Song of Songs. So Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And as we think uh, you know, about the devastation that still lingers in Haiti, the homes that were destroyed, the, which were almost nothing to speak of to begin with, there's a really interesting... Uh, and quite convicting contrast when we then think about, you know, the developed part of the Western world, where there's something about our homes that tells us, you know, whether or not we've arrived. You know, we, you think of all of the, you know, the house buying or the the house flipping television shows that are so popular. You know, house hunters trading spaces, flip this house, and, and you know, the list goes on. Even Feel-good shows like, uh, uh, what's it called, uh, Extreme, yes, the Extreme Makeover Home Edition, you know, and 
if you haven't figured out by now, I cry sometimes over things. And so, you know, invariably when I watch that show, I'm just, oh, you know. But even, even that show has a very strong message that get the right house and you can have a great life. But it goes beyond our homes. Uh, you think of shows like MTV Cribs or Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. You know, it's not just the house. It's the whole lifestyle that goes with it. The cars, the estate, the help, the social life. You know, the, the parties, the entertainment, the booze, the sex, and so on. But even then, you, you can have all of that and still feel like you haven't quite arrived. Uh, in 2005, after having just led the Patriots to their third Super Bowl victory, Tom Brady said in an interview with 60 Minutes, Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, Hey man, this is what is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. And when the interviewer asked him, so what's the answer? His only reply was, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Why is it that as we give ourselves to building our lives, our careers, our fortunes, our homes, that we can't escape the sneaking suspicion that what we're really building is a house of cards? You know, where you you take the playing cards and you stack them one on the other. uh, One small bump and the whole thing gives way. Is there any lasting gain in all of this life of pleasure and human achievement? In all the accumulation of our stuff? That's our question this morning. That's Solomon's question this morning. And if not, if this isn't what it's all cracked up to be, then what? Well, let's pray together as we look at Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11. Lord, we do pray that you would open our eyes to see what is really there in our lives. How do we think about the wealth? How do we think about some of our poverty? How do we think about what we spend our time and energy doing in the few days you've given us here on earth? God, I pray that you would open our hearts and our eyes by your spirit to see you in your word and to change our hearts to help us cling to Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, last week, uh, we began looking at the first of several research projects that Solomon undertakes in his quest to answer the question that he posed back in chapter 1, verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And his first study takes us from 112 through the end of chapter 2, and it focuses on human achievement and human wisdom. So he's going to put those under the microscope and see, is there any lasting gain to be found in those two things? And we looked at the introduction to this study last week, where we saw uh, it's okay to ask these kinds of hard, honest questions about life and faith and God. 
and if we learn from Solomon's study, we see that there are healthy ways to go about wrestling honestly with them. Well, this morning in our passage, um, in the first 11 verses of chapter 2, Solomon's going to get into the meat of the first part of that study. He's going to explore human achievement and activity. All that is done under heaven, as he puts it in 113. And as we've often, as we're often going to see in this book, he, he begins by giving us a taste for, for where he's going to end up. He summarizes his goal and his findings in verses 1 through 2. So he starts with his goal. I said in my heart, this is verse 1, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. See the good in life. So he's opening up a brand new deck of bicycle playing cards, and he's saying, let's build a house and see if we can have any fun in the process. He's looking for pleasure, joy, satisfaction, and delight. There has got to be something worthwhile doing, some meaningful way to expend his energy. But before we even get out of the gate, he already tells us where he's going. But behold, this also was vanity. It was fleeting and fruitless. It was vapor, smoke. What do you mean, Solomon? Well, he gives us a snapshot in verse 2 of this conclusion that everything is really just vapor. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? Think about that. You know, if you've ever been at a maybe a party or a wedding reception or something like that and you're, you're enjoying time with friends and you're laughing it up and someone snaps a photo of you mid-guffaw where you're kind of, you know, like that. And then later... It gets tagged on Facebook, and you've got that picture for the whole world to see of you just, you know, it looks pretty foolish after the moment, doesn't it? Well, what Solomon would use the word mad, it looks mad, something worth laughing at, foolish. That's what laughter is. You know, it's something that's so fun in the moment and can make you look so foolish later on because it... You, you got nothing from it. That's what he says of laughter. It's mad. It, it, it doesn't give you anything. Whether that laughter comes from good, clean fun or, or a celebration or whether it comes out of a cutting sarcasm or a lewd joking or even a, a wild party. What do you have at the end of the day with it? It's mad. It's folly. And as with laughter, so with pleasure. Solomon says, what use is it? And listen to that question. What use is it? What do I get out of pleasure at the end of the day? Remember that Solomon's quest here is to find something of lasting gain under the sun. So in the human realm, the realm of human existence that you and I live in day in and day out, what we can see and experience for ourselves. He's not focusing right now on what happens above the sun in the realm where God steps into the picture. He goes there on occasion, but he wants to, to step back and see what can be made of life if we limit our perspectives to the here and now. And so he looks for pleasure 
And he experiences pleasure. And he says at the end, what use is it? He lets us know up front that his search is in vain. Pleasure is like an expired coupon in the checkout line. You know, despite all of your hopes, it gives you nothing at the end. But then Solomon, after he kind of gives us the snapshot of where he's going, he brings us into his journey, into his experiment in verses 3 through 11, where he's going to test wine, works, wealth, and women to see if pleasure can be found that lasts in this house of cards that he's building. Human activity and achievement, all that's done under heaven. And so he takes the first card out of the deck and he starts with wine. Verse 3. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. And again, we've got his goal of his search right up uh, right clearly uh, at the end of the verse. He's trying to figure out, is there anything worthwhile for humans in a fallen world to spend their time doing? So first up, wine and folly. Like laughter, wine is itself a good thing. It's part of God's good creation. It'll be part of his new creation. And when it's used responsibly and legally, it can be enjoyed as a gift. But scholars are quite divided here as to whether Solomon's trying to use it responsibly, you know, or whether he's just giving himself to drunkenness to figure out if that's worthwhile. Uh, when he says, on the one hand, that you know my heart's still guiding me with wisdom, it seems like this is part of a, a rational test where he's keeping his wits about him. But then when he says later, I'm trying to lay hold of folly, well, that word folly is almost always immoral in Scripture. And so it's hard to tell precisely what his test looks like. But either way, it adds up to nothing. That much is clear. Now, some of us know firsthand the destruction and devastation that alcohol can wield when it's abused. You know what it's like to run and hide when dad gets home at the end of the day. Or to get a phone call in the middle of the night and have to go pick your mom up because she failed the breathalyzer test again. Or to watch your child flush their scholarship down the toilet first semester. So a lot of us know the pain and deep agony that this can cause when it's abused. We think we have something worth living for. And before you can even get that first card balanced, it's flat. It just falls over. Now, that's true of alcohol, whether you abuse it or whether you enjoy it in holiness, though. That's Solomon's point here. As one author aptly describes it, good food, good coffee, and good wine are all headed toward the same place, which in most cases is the sewage treatment plant. What lasting gain have you got? It's vapor. Solomon's point. And so we pull another card from the deck. If wine can't give me what I'm looking for in life, let's try what Solomon calls great works. Verses 4 through 6. I made great works. I built 
houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. That was just a lavish description. And it parallels the description of Solomon's building projects in 1 Kings 7. You know, it took Solomon seven years to build the temple, the house of the Lord. It took him 13 years to build his own palace and all of his own buildings and estate with the richest cedars and costly stones. But there's another passage here that's also being paralleled. Listen again to the imagery of what Solomon's describing here. I planted vineyards, gardens, and parks. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. What other passage of scripture might that language remind you of if you stop and think about it? Yeah, Genesis 1 and 2. In his quest for pleasure and lasting gain from human activity and achievement, Solomon sets out to recreate Eden, his own new creation. Only this one has no forbidden fruit. He withheld nothing that might be useful for pleasure. And as he amasses for himself people and possessions and everything he needs to party, we see the next three cards coming out of the deck. Verses 7 and 8. I bought male, male and female servants. I had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than anyone who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So he had the building in the grounds. Now he needs the staff, the stores, the treasure, and the entertainment. And so that's what he now builds. He purchases slaves for himself, exploiting other humans made in God's image in order to recreate his Eden. He collected a ridiculous amount of livestock. First uh, Kings 4 tells us that his provision for a single day included 180 bushels of flour, 360 bushels of meal, along with 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fat and fowl. That's a pretty big party every single day. To this he added his great wealth. He had so much gold that 1 Kings 10.21 says, silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. And to his wealth, he added music and sex, a chorus of singers and a harem of wives and concubines that would make your head spin. 700 wives, 300 concubines, according to First Kings. And notice in all of this how many times the word I occurs here. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks. I bought slaves. I had great possessions. I got singers and concubines. So one card, gently stacked, one upon another, 
to try and see, is any of this going to please in the end? Unless we criticize Solomon for his extravagance, let's not forget that we are neither different nor immune toward that same temptation of indulgence. We like our stuff. We find significance in our stuff. When one storage facility manager was recently asked why his business is so successful, he answered, people are narcissistic and materialistic. They can't part with their stuff. I don't have room for it, but I can't let go of it, and so I'll store it for five years and never see it. I've done that. Instead of using and even enjoying our stuff like a gift, we treat it like a god. We look to it for identity, for value. And with it, we create our own personal Eden. My life, my stuff, my world, just the way I want it to be. And it's interesting to see that Solomon's description of the initial results of his experiment uh, in verses 9 and 10. Look at verse 9. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep it from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was the reward for all my toil. He found surpassing fame, enduring wisdom, and unbridled pleasure. He had arrived. He had arrived. And in that process, he denied himself nothing that might possibly give him some semblance of joy. But not unlike most of us, not unlike Tom Brady, you know, even when you're sitting on top of the world, you have this sneaking suspicion that this can't be all that there is. This can't be all it's cracked up to be. That it's really just that, that precarious house of cards waiting for that first bump and the whole thing to go flat. Listen to Sri Lankan uh, scholar Vinod Ramachandra's observations about life in the Western world. The people of the modern West and the middle class of non-Western cultures are better fed, better housed, and better equipped with health care than those in any previous age in human history. But paradoxically, they also seem the most fearful the most divided, the most superstitious, and the most bored generation in human history. All the labor-saving devices of modern technology have only enhanced human stress. And modern life is characterized by a restless movement from place to place, from one experience to another, in a frenetic whirl of purposeless activity. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound very modern. It sounds exactly like what Solomon's describing. That's his assessment of you know, his search for pleasure and lasting gain and all the activity and achievements possible for humans in this world. Verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done 
and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. All our achievement, all our pleasure, all our possessions and stuff, they don't last and they don't fill us. Vapor. Smoke. Pretty soon we find ourselves singing John Mayer. I'm dizzy from the shopping malls. I searched for joy. I bought it all. Something's missing and I don't know how to fix it. Something's missing and I don't know what it is. And we, we design our, our dream homes. We love it until our friend comes up with something a little bit better or our bank account comes up a little bit short. We live life plugged into our iPods. We've got our own personal theme music playing throughout our lives for everything that we do. But eventually that favorite song gets old. Even the most moving orchestral piece is followed by the silence and emptiness of the concert hall after it's locked up for the night. You know, the secret lover or the friend with benefits doesn't satisfy. Pornography leaves you feeling hollow inside. The spouse that you thought would be the answer to all of your problems ends up being a sinner just like you. Something's missing, and I don't know what it is. And whether they give way one by one or all come tumbling down in a great crash, all this achievement, all this frenetic world of purposeless activity, everything we spend our time doing in the few days that we have on earth disappoints and disappears. Vapor. But not only is recreating our own personal Eden foolish and futile, it's also rebellious and idolatrous. Tim Keller explains, sin is not only doing bad things, it's more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. And as rebels and idolaters, we not only have nothing to show for our work in trying to recreate Eden after our liking, we also have now put ourselves at odds with the holy God of the universe. So where do we go from here? If this really is all there is, if it is what it's all cracked up to be, and our own personal Edens have been found wanting and we're now at odds with God, then what? Where do we go? What we need is, in fact, a new creation, but not one of our own making. What we need is the new creation that Jesus is making. A new creation he established through his life, death, and resurrection, and which he will bring to glorious completion when he returns. In Jesus, God is making all things new. That 
purposeless whirl of activity. He's making it new. What Adam failed to do, what Solomon attempted to recreate and then failed again, and what we strive to do and fail again and again, Jesus did. As God's eternal son, as fully God and yet fully human, able to stand in our place. So he turned this broken world upside down by taking the sin, the rebellion and the vanity on himself on the cross and taking it away. Canceling the debt. Cleansing us. And rising on the third day, beginning his new creation. Now, that creation is not complete. It's at work, but Jesus has to return to finish it. But even now, in the meantime, we can be part of that new creation. We can be part of God's restoring work, our lives being restored and made new by his spirit through faith in Jesus. Think about what 2 Corinthians 5.17, a verse that is very familiar to many of us. Think about Solomon's attempt to recreate Eden and make sense of this world. Think about our own attempts And then think about what this verse is actually saying. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All that we're looking for, all that we're trying to create out of our own effort, it's in Christ. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. New creation is dawning in Jesus. So what then do we do with our stuff? What do we do with this whirl of activity? Uh, As most of you in here know, trusting Jesus doesn't mean that I have to run less often back and forth to the grocery store four times in one day and then to get the kids to soccer and to gymnastics. We're still caught in this rat race. What difference does new creation in Jesus actually make of how we think about our stuff and our activity We need to be able to distinguish in our hearts and in our actions the difference between treating something as a gift and treating it as God. And there are three things that will help us do that as we look to the new creation in Christ. First, be satisfied in Jesus. Be satisfied in Jesus. We've heard that drumbeat a lot. Throughout his test, Solomon took several things that by themselves were very good. Wine, work, a house, possessions, music, sex. And he set them up as gods and then said, what can you do for me? And none of them could make good. When he looked for satisfaction, he found emptiness, vanity. But when Jesus is all our hope, when he is our identity, all our satisfaction, our joy and our pleasure, our delight are in him. When we look with faith to his new creation, which has begun and is to come, then we have a pleasure and a joy 
and a delight that can never perish and fade. And in the meantime, we can trust Jesus to take care of the rest. Listen to what he says in Matthew 6. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Be satisfied in Jesus. Don't be anxious about your stuff. You can and you will lose your stuff. You cannot lose Jesus. Not if you belong to him. And when you're satisfied in Christ, and he is all your hope and delight, then you're in place for the second and third points. So, first, be satisfied in Jesus. Number two, be thankful for what you have. Be thankful for what you have. Recognize that what money, what home, what food or car or job, what school, what spouse that you have, all of it is a gift from God. And gifts are meant to be enjoyed. Not worshipped, but enjoyed. When I give, when Carissa and I give our kids a birthday gift, I expect that they will enjoy it. That's why we gave it to them. I don't expect them to leave it laying in the box in the corner. I want them to tear that thing open and go have fun. I don't want them to worship it, though. You know, I don't want them to uh, whine and, and throw a tantrum when they can't have it, to beg for it all of the time, and, and, and so on. It's a gift, but it's not God. And if they want it that bad, it's not going to give them what they're looking for. So also, when God blesses us with good gifts, we need to be thankful and to receive them with gratitude and enjoy them. Just because something can be abused doesn't mean that it shouldn't be used properly. And that's a hard tension to figure out in our lives. Our temptation when we see someone abusing something is to demonize it. So we see wealth being abused. And so we demonize wealth and now poverty becomes the idol. We see alcohol being abused, so we demonize it, and now teetotaling or something like that becomes the idol. We see sex abused, and so we demonize it, forgetting that it is good, that it is a gift designed by God for man and woman in the covenant of marriage. If we are not careful when we look at the brokenness of this world and the pain and abuse that really is there and is evil... If we're not careful, we're going to end up becoming like the false teachers and liars in 1 Timothy 4, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. 
So be thankful for what you have. Enjoy the gifts that God gives you. Don't treat them like God. But enjoy them. And that's only possible if you're satisfied in Jesus. You will treat it like a God if you're not satisfied in Christ. So be satisfied in Jesus. Be thankful for what what you have. But third, and this is extremely crucial, be ready to part with what you have. Be ready to part with what you have. And there are several reasons for this. First, what you have is vapor. A house of cards. And eventually it will disappear. And you'll have, what you'll have left is either Jesus or nothing at all. None of us are guaranteed another day. Uh, if you think of the parable that Jesus told in Luke 12 that we heard earlier this morning. I mean, the man had so much wealth and abundance. He didn't know what to do with himself. And so he decides he's going to tear down his barns and build bigger ones and then just relax. God called him a fool for that. Because his soul was required of him that night and all his stuff was going to go to someone else. Don't be a fool and hold tightly to your stuff. Be satisfied in Jesus. Enjoy it while you have it. But be ready to part with it. The second reason we should be ready to part with our stuff is the grace of generosity. If Jesus is enough, if he's all we have and supplies all our needs, it's easy to share freely with those who are in need. It is a grace. It's an expression of God's love for us and for them to To share in that grace of giving. That's hard to do if I treat my money like God. It's a little easier when I treat Jesus like God. And follow his pattern of laying his life down. Being ready to part with my stuff when someone's in need. And that brings us to the third reason. And perhaps the most important reason that we should be ready to part with what we have. The gospel may require it. The gospel of Jesus and our call to advance his mission may require it. Listen again to the verses that Tom read at the beginning of the service from Mark 8. Jesus called to him the crowd with his disciples and he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? Now, denying yourself is not in vogue today. Saying no to who you are and to your personal ambitions, surrendering them to Jesus, dying to yourself, which is what it means to take up your cross. When Jesus took up his cross, he was going to die. So dying to yourself, that's not popular. (laughs) That is not popular. Instead, we want to build our own Eden. Redesign creation around our own desires and ambitions And find lasting pleasure and value in it. 
We want to gain the world. That's our default. But the cross, the cross of Jesus bids us come and die. Be willing to part with the things of this world if it means being more useful to Jesus in his mission. Now, I don't know what that looks like for you. Uh, That's between you and the Lord. It may be simply choosing to eat out less so that you have more to share with those in need or with missionaries. It may mean selling everything you have and becoming a missionary. That's between you and the Lord. But I do know this. Whatever God asks of you, big or small, in order to use you to make his name known and to rescue more and more people from the hopeless vanity of life without him, whatever he asks will be worth it. The reward you receive, which is Jesus himself, more than compensates for the loss. As I've quoted before, missionary and martyr Jim Elliott once said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And we live in the chaos and the rat race of life in a fallen world where all the activity and achievements that we're tempted to trust in will at some point prove fleeting and fruitless. So be satisfied in Jesus instead. Enjoy what you have. Be thankful for it. And be ready to part with it when the time comes. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. That's a sweet promise. Let's pray together. Lord, what you ask is absolutely impossible. Even as my eyes look on these verses and my mouth utters these comments, my heart has a hard time believing that that's even possible. To be so utterly satisfied, delighted in, to find lasting pleasure in Jesus to the point where I can let go of everything. I can't do that, God. And neither can any of us. So we ask for your spirit to do the transforming work in our lives. To give us such a sweet vision of your son. Who he is. Of all that he's done for us. Such a compelling vision of your holiness such that We're repulsed by our greediness and our sin. May we follow that example by your grace and lay our lives down. I pray, Jesus, that we would be thankful, that we of all people would be very thankful people, but that we would be eager to die to self for the sake of the cross. Do that work in our hearts. Do the impossible, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.